0: Oh, good morning. As uh, as we continue our study in First John, you know we come to kind of a a, a challenging section today. Um, the the title of this this sermon is uh, Proper Standing, Proper Affections. You know where where do we stand in, in Christ? You know where are we in our our uh, spiritual development, our spiritual maturity, and you know what's expected of us. And you know where should our affections be? Should they be towards uh, God or towards towards the world to, towards ourselves? You know, what do people see when they when they look at us? When when people recognize that that we're Christians, uh, there's a there's a book that uh, Sky Jethani wrote. It's called With. One word. W h i w i t h With. And it's a, it's about having a, a proper relationship with, with God. And the book begins like this. Let me read this to you. He says, My concern is that we are inoculating an entire generation to the Christian faith. Many come with a holy desire to know God, to experience his presence in their lives, to be cared for like sheep entrusted to a meek and gentle shepherd. But this is not what they experience. In fact, they may leave the church without ever seeing a beautiful and enthralling vision of life with God. The lights are never turned on to reveal the beauty that is present just behind the shadows. Instead, they are offered a substitute form of Christianity, one that cannot break through the shadows and never really satisfies the deepest longing of their souls. When their experience of faith leaves them disappointed, they may falsely conclude that Christianity has failed. In reality, to quote G.K. Chesterton, (laughs) the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Or perhaps it might be more accurately said of our time that Christianity has not been presented and therefore has been left untried. The result is a generation disaffected and inoculated to the true Christian message. So how do we live? Do we, do we think and do we act like the unsaved people around us? Or, or are we enjoying the God of our salvation? Walking with him, praying, reading his word, uh, knowing our identity in him. Are we living totally transformed lives, or are we succumbing to the enticements of, of the world, you know, embracing the the world's way of of thinking and being drawn away from God? Well, our text today is First John two twelve through seventeen, and John starts off with a with a challenging but really encouraging note. And then he goes on to issue a very stern warning about where we should set our affections or, or whether, where we should not set our affections, and that is on the world. You know, he, he addresses our, our tendency to uh, love the wrong things. And when we do, we're in, we're in very grave danger. In the first three verses, John addresses three groups of, of Christians uh, he calls them children, fathers, and, and young men. What he's doing is he's addressing believers in various stages of uh, Christian maturity. Now remember, God loves these people, or John loves these people, God does too, but John loves these people. He considers them to be his, his spiritual children. You know, he's, he's got a tremendous uh, personal and, and emotional and spiritual investment in, in these people and, and in their walk with the Lord, you know, John is addressing those who are are genuine believers. He's addressing their their status, their their standing in Christ. Uh, very encouraging words for the for the family of God. And this is going to be the uh, the foundation of of what comes next, which is a warning and a standard by which we should live as as believers but here he addresses the status now keep in mind you know within the context of of this letter paul has just been talking about love loving one another loving one another uh, obeying the commandments of of christ walking in light instead of darkness we can't we can't approach this passage without realizing that's where we're coming from, from because John is saying these are the people I these are the people I'm writing to these are the these are the ones I'm addressing when I say that. Remember, uh, he had said in uh, verses nine through eleven. This is the portion that comes immediately before this chapters or verses nine through eleven of chapter two. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and, and walks in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So, for each of these groups, he's saying, I am writing these things because of where you are in your spiritual journey. Each group is responsible for obedience to Christ's commandments, responsible for loving one another. And here's why. Let's read, beginning with verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So John first addresses children and notice how he circles back. He he, uh, addresses each of these groups twice. But in uh, verses twelve and thirteen, he addresses children, and John uses two different words for for children. The first he uses is uh, technia, the Greek word technia, which means little child, little children. In the second reference, he, he uses uh, paedia, which is a, a very young child. You know, generally a child up to the uh, the age of seven. Now, essentially, both words mean the same thing. Jesus uses both words to uh, describe his disciples in the Gospels. He's writing to uh, all of us in a sense because we all, are children, we've all had our sins forgiven for his name's sake and because we know the Father. You know, the second word though, paedia, sometimes carries the, the sense of one who is open to instruction. This is... This is a person who wants to learn. This is a person who wants to grow. This is a person who wants to know God. And I think there's great significance in the fact that he uses this word. You know, we must come to Christ as children, open to, uh, to what he has to say and taking his word with, with all sincerity. Again, John's already, talk, he's already talked about the forgiveness of sins. It's, it's granted to those who confess their sins. Remember that verse. The basis, John says, of this forgiveness is his name's sake. His name's sake. This is the name of Jesus Christ. The, the only name by which we can be saved. You know, we're, we're saved on the account of, of Jesus' name. God forgives us because of Jesus Christ. You know The one who... He sent to atone for our sins. You know, on, the, on the basis of the finished work of God or of Jesus on the cross, we cross we know God, and what a great thing it is to be saved, to be to be called the children of God. What a what a privilege it is to know Him and, and to be forgiven of our sins. You know, there, there are several mentions in the in the New Testament. Of us, being called the children of God, you know, the, the term comes up three times in, in this letter, it comes up a couple times in, in John's gospel account. You know Jesus used the term, you know in fact, he identified those who are called the children of God as, as being peacemakers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. We will know, be known as children of God because we are those who make peace. This is, this is to be our identity. In, in John's gospel, we have the, uh, the requirements for becoming the children of God. John one twelve, to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God who are born not of flesh, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but the will of God. Uh, So, in a sense, all believers are children. In another sense, though, in the context of this letter, he's referring to those who are are less mature, those who spiritually are are children. Maybe they don't know all there is to know about the Bible. But what do they know? They do know that their sins are forgiven. They know they've been saved on the account of Jesus' name. You know his his name represents his his person and it represents his, his saving work. In Acts four twelve he says there is salvation and no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given upon given among men by which we must be saved. So these children, they, they know the Father. They have known him. They still know him. They have a, a genuine relationship with God. And God's saving work of sanctification continues to change them, to grow them and make them more mature. And as such, these children are to be obedient to the commandments of Jesus Christ and to love one another. New Christians are responsible for obeying and loving. The next, John addresses the fathers. These are he he addresses these in verse thirteen and fourteen. These he he's addressing them because they know him who is from the beginning, and he says the same thing twice. Rather, rather curious. Maybe we should pay attention. Interestingly, there's only one other place in the New Testament where men are called fathers. In 1 Timothy, Paul gives Timothy advice on, on how to relate to the older men in the church. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Well, who's John talking about here? He's talking about mature Christians. He's talking about those who are a spiritual Adults, older adults, the, the passage of time hopefully has resulted in growth and maturity. They've known he who is from the beginning. This is the one who in both first John and the Gospel of John is is the word Jesus Christ. He's he's the one who John speaks about in the beginning of chapter 1, the one he and many others had heard and and seen and touched, the incarnate word, the the Christ who came to live among us as a man and die to bear our sins. So presumably these mature Christians have been walking with the Lord for a long time, a number of years. They're the ones who have influenced generations of, of believers. And, uh, you know, I'd like, I'd like to challenge those of us who have been walking with the Lord for a long time. For me, it's been well over 50 years, over a half a century. It's been longer than that for, for many in this room, I believe. Here's the challenge, though. The passage of time doesn't necessarily guarantee maturity spiritually. You know, some of us have gone through periods of life where our growth has been stunted. There have been periods of our life that we've wasted and not grown and matured. but the spiritual adults must be the, the mature ones. We need, we need to understand biblical principles. We need to be attuned fully to the heart of God. We need to know God's word, and we need to be able to teach it to the, the less mature. And what a shame it is when people who've been walking with the Lord for decades are behaving spiritually like, chi- like children and when their biblical knowledge is, is deficient. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. He says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And now you're not, not yet ready. You're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy... And strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? The writer of Hebrews speaks to those who become dull of hearing, whose, whose growth has been stunted. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who've had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We need to have constant practice and training None of us is exempt. Those of us who are mature Christians need to be the examples for the younger believers. And the key John gives us right here is knowing him. Knowing him who is from the beginning. Knowing Jesus. Walking with him. He talked earlier about walking in the light. Walking with him. Being with him. Our our relationship with Jesus is the very basis of what we need to be spiritual fathers. And as such, mature believers are responsible to love one another with the love that God has given us. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. We are to model this love and, and be obedient, being an example to those who are less mature. Now finally, John addresses young men. This is what we all wish we were, right? Verses 13 and 14, he addresses them. He says, I write to young men because you have overcome the evil one because you're strong because the word of god abides in you you've overcome the evil one so these are no longer babes in christ they're, they're they still have their youth reach spiritual adulthood these are the ones who will who will take up the mantle and become leaders in the church. Some of them are already leading very well in the church. These are the ones who are strong in battle, not fighting flesh and blood, but spiritual forces, standing firm in Jesus Christ, fighting for the things that are worth fighting for, not the things that are not. They know him. They rely on him. He gives them strength. They know God's word and better. God's word abides in them. It dwells in them. Like the psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. God's word is is living, living and active in them. It it richly dwells in them, giving them strength. God's word and, and the indwelling Holy Spirit who inspired that word, these are ready for battle. They're overcomers. And as such, these young believers are responsible for being obedient to Christ's commandments and to love one another. So children, fathers, the the youthful. John is essentially saying, everyone who's a believer, I'm talking to all of you. I'm writing these things. About following Christ's commands, about loving one another, about walking in the light, I'm writing them to you. No one's exempt. No matter where we are on our our spiritual journey, no matter where we are in our walk with the Lord, John is saying, This is for you. This is for your encouragement. It's also for your challenge, it's for your benefit. This is your responsibility. This is my responsibility. It's our responsibility to love one another. So having given this encouragement and this challenge to each of us, John now gives us a very stern warning, a warning about where our affections lie. We need need to love the Father, we need the love of the Father. We need his love to flow through us to one another. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not in From the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This warning is to the people he's just described. That is every one of us. Why? Because we tend to drift, we tend to leave and wander and and leave the God we, we love. First Corinthians 10:12 says, "Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let anyone who stands take heed lest he fall. We are all susceptible to stumbling and falling. You know, we all live in this world as strangers, as sojourners, exiles, and it's easy for us to stumble and, and fall. John says, don't love the world. Don't love the things that are in the world. If you do, the love of the Father is not in you. You're devoid of the Father's love. Let's first look at what John is talking about when he says the world. The the word he uses in the Greek is cosmos. You've you've heard that. Some have used this... uh, this passage to, to form and support a, a dualistic view, which, which considers all things that are, that are physical to be bad, things spiritual or good. Remember, we talked about this. This was part of the, the Gnostic heresy. This is not where John's going with this. In fact, he argues against this view. Uh, remember, Jesus came into the world he came in the flesh John 1:10 he was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him he was in the world we are in the world we can't avoid it now this word cosmos can mean different things it's it's used in a lot of different ways just like the word world is used in a lot of different ways it can mean a uh, you know the sum total of everything here and now you know the the universe very general meaning could mean the uh, the planet earth it could mean humanity in general it can mean the system of human existence in its many aspects and this this last definition probably is is closest to what john is getting at you know the world is is a scene of uh, worldly or earthly joys possessions cares sufferings you know, everything in the world is is not necessarily bad. The thing is, the world is, as we know it is, is broken. It's, it's marred. It's twisted. It's, it's under the influence and, and the dominion of, of Satan. You know, the, the system of the world ends up being mankind organized in rebellion against God organized under the power of evil. So this world, this world is is a place that is in desperate need for restoration, desperate need for, for redemption. Peter called us elect exiles, sojourners, strangers and here we are, John says, don't love the world, don't love the world, and we run we run the risk of going native. I I was in a doctor's office a few years ago, and there's this old, old copy of a National Geographic that was talking about the descendants of the uh, the mutineers on the bounty. Very interesting article, these guys, these descendants are, are still around, but this, this uh, this story is about a group of sailors who sailed to Tahiti with a mission of obtaining a lot of breadfruit. In October 1788, after a storm-tossed journey spanning 10 months and 27,000 miles, the bounty finally reached Tahiti. And it was idyllic, as, as the bounty's crew had, had been told it would be and they took full advantage of it they were welcomed by the tahitians who traded with them even took them into their homes they formed attachments with the islands women and they were enticed to forget their mission and forget their homes and that's that's just what they did there's a lot more to the story than that but you know they essentially went native So John's talking about the, the world and, and its enticements. The, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and, and the pride of life. These are the things that he calls the things of the world which we must not love. These are things that are that are opposed to God. You know, we, we hear about these things very early in the Bible. We'll get to that in a second, but let's look at each of these. First of all is the uh, the desires of the flesh. The uh, the word the uh, English Standard Version translates desires. Sometimes in other translations you'll see the word lust, the, the lust of the flesh. And this word is found 38 times in, in the New Testament. And in only three places does this word have a a, a positive connotation. It's it's uh, in the original language it means a desire for something forbidden or simply inordinate, a, a craving, a lust. You get the idea you know it's more than just wanting something the sense is that you have to have it you know what are what are the what are the kind of things we will sin to obtain what are the kind of things that we will sin for if we don't get that's what he's talking about you know when our when our natural desires for things such as food and and sex and comfort take control of us what happens? It, it displaces our desire and our, our affection for God and, and His righteousness, and we sin. And so, Paul gives us Paul gives us a list a list of qualities that'll that'll mark ungodly people in the last days. Among other things, he says in Second Timothy three four there'll be lovers of self, without self control, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. The second thing of the world that we must not love is the, the desires of the eyes, the, the lust of the eyes. You know, what happens when we see something we desire? You know, maybe it's something that's not inherently sinful. I, I see a, a beautiful shiny orange in the fruit bowl at home and I take it and I peel it and I eat it. So what? I see a nice truck in the, the parking lot. Yeah, I'd like to have one just like that. Maybe someday I will. When do I cross the line though? You know, when I when I start resenting the the owner of that truck, you know, I've gotta have it. That desire, that thing I see just takes over. That desire becomes an idol. That idol is something that displaces my my love for God and in my heart. You know, there's an entire industry that's built to induce this desire, this lust of the eyes. It's called advertising. This, This entire industry exists to create in us a desire many times for things we didn't even know existed. You know, the advertiser's job is to convince us that this new tool or or gadget or, or pair of shoes or whatever is what we absolutely need. The, the, the need for that overrides everything else in our, our lives. You know, I've got to have that, what's that blanket with the built-in arms? Um, Snuggie. Got to have a Snuggie. You know, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about someone who can't get enough of things. Uh, he says there's no end to all his toil and his, his eyes will never be satisfied with riches. And we have a lot of stories in the Bible that talk about this. Think of, think of David who succumbed to the lust of his eyes and that led to his giving, giving, in, giving in to the lust of the flesh, uh, resulting in, in adultery and, and murder. Second Samuel eleven one through 4 in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out for battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about this woman. He said, uh, and one said, "Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite?" And so David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. You know, another another illustration of this uh, this lust of the eyes is uh, Achan in the book of Joshua seven twenty one or twenty through twenty one. Taken in battle, sinned by taking the, the devoted things, the spoils which were devoted to God. And he, he says, uh, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent and with the silver underneath so both David and Achan succumbed to the lust of the eyes in both cases they they sinned, they dishonored God, and the result was death. The result was destruction. The third thing in the world is the the pride of life. This is the uh the arrogance produced by uh, material possessions, by self sufficiency. The person who thinks he's got the wealth and the property to protect himself and and ensure his security doesn't have a need for God. You know, where do we find our our fulfillment in in ourselves, in our accomplishments, in our our stuff, in our power, our, our control? You know, interestingly, if we, if, if we go back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, we see these three things. We see the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the, the pride of life. Let me read this to you, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, touch it lest you die. Listen to this. Listen to what the serpent says and look look for those three things. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman, she saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise and she took of the fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Aren't these the things that John is talking about here? The the desires of the flesh. Eve saw that the fruit was good for food. The desire of the eyes The fruit was a delight to the eyes. The pride of life, the the fruit was desired to to make one wise, and she took of the fruit and ate. All of these things the desires of the, uh, the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life what do they have in common? They all revolve around self, do they not? They, they involve serving self, pleasing self, rather than serving God and, and pleasing God. As John says, when we when we love the world, we, we abandon the love of the Father. John says, the, the world is passing away and along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever you know these these selfish worldly desires have no place in us they have no place in our church the outlook is is very grim if we hold on to these things there's there's nothing that can come nothing good can come from this self Centered, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, nothing of enduring value. Instead, we must do the will of God, keeping his commandments, walking closely with him, walking in his light, loving one another as Christ loved us. And when we do God's will, he says, we will endure forever. So no matter no matter where we are in our Christian maturity, we have a basis. We we have what it takes to be obedient to God, to obedient to Christ's command, to love one another. The Holy Spirit through John writes these things to us, each one of us. The love of the Father is opposed to the love of the world things of the world and the love of self we need proper standing we need proper affection will will we settle for an inoculation of of a selfish rebellious worldly weak version of Christianity which makes us resistant to Christ and his kingdom and his righteousness Or will we be all in for Christ, seeking him above all else? Let's pray. Um, Lord, open our eyes. Show us, Lord, where, where we've got, where we've gotten off your, your path of, of righteousness. Uh, Lord, I pray that you take our eyes off from our, our selfish desires. Search our hearts, Lord. Try us. Fill us, Lord, with, with your love. Love for one another. Lord, I pray that you tear down the walls of, of hostility that exist in our church. Lord, I pray that you bring health to this body. We need you, Lord, every minute. Every minute we need you, Lord, every day. And Lord, if if you're not with us, we are nothing. Help us, Lord, to return to our first love. Amen.